0: Good morning, welcome to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We air on Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. My name is Christina, I use pronouns she, her, and we have a returning guest with us here today if you'd like to introduce yourself.
1: Bonjour, Jack I'm Jack, my pronouns are he, him.
0: The UMFM 101.5 broadcasts at 1200 watts from the University of Manitoba, located on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Nihaiwak, Ojikri, Dakota, and Denny peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. So, today we're going to talk about Indigenous representation in film and media. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fun times. <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fun and confusing and problematic. And, and, s- and next rarely, to, to non existence. Yeah, but usually just tons of erasure.
0: Yeah, a lot of erasure.
1: Something really wild I've noticed is on Netflix, and I noticed this a few months ago, that there were actually more movies about natives being murdered by whites than there were about natives doing anything else. And I actually (laughs) compiled a list So just off the top of my head, and this is in Netflix, I think Netflix Canada, or maybe in between Netflix Canada and US, there was Wind River, Hostels, Hold the Dark, The West, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Saints and Strangers, the Ridiculous Six, which is just problematic for a variety of reasons, <laughs> in which it's known that this is an Adam Sandler movie, and the Native cultural consult- consultants for that movie actually walked off the set, as did several of the actors.
0: And they still Oh, yeah, aired it. it's on Netflix. Oh, oh naturally.
1: Um, Bone Tomahawk uh, is, of course, anti-Indigenous, and The Homesman, which stars Hillary Swink. And all those movies have images or scenes of Natives being killed in Frontier Life or just in the Plains region.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can't readily think of too many examples of indigenous people being represented in media positively uh, at all. Yeah. It's usually just to progress the storyline of the, you know, the white hero.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh my god. Did I you mean, see the April Fools okay. edition of the Manitoban?
1: Oh my gosh, I thought it was real. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't I forgot it was April 1st or whatever and I thought, god, this is unacceptable. I'm going <laughs> to they got me
0: (laughs) it was like finally the story of the white hero being told
1: (laughs) i literally thought it i thought it was a joke i was like is this a joke but i thought it was real i I don't know i was so confused and then i saw the the puppy politics and i was like oh that's cute puppy politics (laughs) on the back page the puppies running for political
0: positions well i'm glad the manitoban knows (laughs) the story of the white hero is all we ever hear so, Jack, I know you have a lot of examples readily available of... Oh, yes. uh, of Indigenous representation in media or the lack thereof.
1: Sure, so maybe I'll start with That 70s Show, which takes place in small-town Wisconsin, and it's a family favorite. Everyone loves this show. It is problematic for a variety of reasons, but really there are anti-Indigenous jokes throughout the season, often in reference to the character Fez. Fez (laughs) is like the token brown character. He's uh, from an unnamed... We never know the name that's part of the joke, apparently, of an unnamed supposedly Latin American country and they make jokes about him being from the jungle and things like that and he has a hispanophone accent and he's very much infantilized in a way it's kind of weird Mm -hmm. like they position him as like this child who likes candy and he is obsessed with candy it's one of his things and he's new to everything new in a sense that he's new to Wisconsin which is totally different uh, supposedly from wherever he's from but also it's kind of perpetuating this idea that he's new to anything modern that he's new to the world just like a child would and it
0: sounds like they're trying to make colonization sounds sound cute
1: yeah and same goes for the office maybe even worse for the office because yeah throughout you know the seasons There's so much indigenous language and imagery. It's really different because on the East Coast, you'll get different types of anti-indigenous racism as you would in the Midwest. Because colonization kind of began to happen later in the Midwest, of course. So on the East Coast, you do see things like people running around with headdresses. You see Andy. I don't know if you remember Andy from The Office. Uh, Yes. He's turning up the thermostat in the office and he says, we're going to turn this place into a good old fashioned sweat lodge. That's like a very sacred religious ceremony for many indigenous Mm -hmm. peoples uh, i i'd venture to say around the world if not at least you know in northern areas or you know around here but uh it's just incredibly disrespectful and you know we weren't even allowed to legally have sweat lodges until 1978 in the united states to practice our religions at all
0: so they're trying to take this incredibly important sacred thing and just make light of it and oh, make yeah. it into an entire joke. They're oh, yeah. so notorious for that throughout yeah. the entire series with so yeah. many things. And they yeah. just, like, excuse it by saying, oh, well, it's cringe comedy. Like, yeah. you know, it's supposed to kind of make you a little bit uncomfortable, like this tongue-in-cheek humor. Yeah. Meanwhile, like, exactly. I don't think that excuses being incredibly problematic. Yeah. They're just like, oh, well, it was just a joke. You know, obviously we know that that's a joke and people shouldn't act that way. But it's like... But the American ha- public no, know. Exactly, the viewers, the audiences don't they know don't because know.
1: the American education system, and i venture to say Canadian as well, don't oh, actually yeah. educate K 12 students on the real history of colonization and the continuity of settler colonialism and all the ways it's impacted us, whether in terms of ceremony, religion, language, residential schools, boarding schools in the U.S. No one, without understanding the history, it makes it 10 times worse because then you just think, oh, that's a funny joke. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating because the office was, I might say, praised for having such a diverse cast and that was great because they did have characters from cultures you wouldn't see on other tv shows right but they had no indigenous representation at all in all the seasons no and i was so just like taken back by that because this show worked hard to get people from various groups that are never or rarely represented on tv Mm -hmm. and they failed to get the group that was there all along
0: yeah exactly. (laughs) it's just like why can't we have
1: all of them because yeah. if we had all of them, then it's like the producers or the directors would think, oh, now it's getting too diverse and no one's going to watch it. Well, that's not true. Like we know from stats of TV shows like One Day at a Time and Master of None that and Dear White People that people want to watch shows where stories being told by black and brown peoples are the center of the show. So let's focus on all BIPOC voices and not assume that if a show doesn't have white people in it or doesn't have enough white people in it, that it's not going to get any attention. Uh, I mean, look at black Panther. It's like,
0: yeah, it's a huge hit. Like people love it. And
1: I mean, there were like quite a few white people in it who had a lot of dialogue. Uh, Was that necessary? I don't think so. I think if there weren't, weren't even as many white people in it, I think it'd still be a huge hit because look at it. Like it's a beautiful film.
0: Yeah. What an interesting cultural phenomenon. How, if somebody has like, (laughs) too many intersections yeah. that are different from the mythical norm then mm-hmm. that's it's seen as too much it's like oh well that's too far away from yeah. from normal is that are people going to like that and it's like of course people are going to like that yeah yeah and then in the the big bang theory too they make light of so many racist and sexist issues yeah do you have any
1: example i just because i've never seen it so
0: oh yeah no i actually i used to love that show but as of late like when you actually start to see the the patterns and the problems it's like i love that 70s
1: show when i was a kid i had no idea what i was watching was so anti-indigenous and then i grew up and i realized oh my god watching that was preventing me from connecting to my own indigeneity and connecting to my own culture because it was reducing my own identity to stereotypes sorry Mm -hmm. go ahead big bang theory
0: no worries (laughs) at all yeah, um, and there's this really cool YouTube channel called the Pop Culture Detective Agency, and they created this... <laughs> That's awesome. I know, right? They created this video called The Adorkable Misogyny of the Big Bang Theory, and even the title, I'm just like... What a good way of putting it, <laughs> because they just like in the office they make so many problematic, racist and sexist jokes, and they just play it off as cutesy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you God. just like get like they're on Twitter? Kind of
1: <laughs> 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 they're everywhere. This is cool. Oh, I the pop! culture. Yeah, j- did you just look up out? the pop
0: culture detective agency on Twitter? I
1: just they just popped up. They're all over YouTube. Oh, amazing! This is yeah. awesome. I'm they cool they
0: opinions. do some pretty good analyses for sure. But yeah, they really break it down in their videos. Like, I would totally (laughs) recommend them. You mentioned Dear White People. Did you want to kind of talk about the Indigenous Um, representation in that show?
1: Well, there is none, first of all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They have all these student groups. They have on campus, like, the ethnic student groups. And then there is no Indigenous student group which I don't know why there isn't one, because like Harvard has one, Dartmouth has one, and this is supposed to be at one of these kind of liberal universities, like as in, not liberal politically, I mean technically compared to other universities perhaps, but liberal arts universities we say in the US. Mm -hmm. So uh, you kind of have a little bit more flexibility and it's smaller, more focused. They also tend to be really expensive private colleges and universities on the East Coast. And that's the name of their school. It's like Winchester. It's like a fake kind of liberal arts school. Right. Uh, Or imagined one. But yeah, they have these student groups and there's no indigenous student group. And it's like, why?
0: Mm -hmm. Like anyone who
1: went to Dartmouth or Harvard, okay, maybe not because some people are so isolated, but I would say they could tell you, but I guess not always. But there's some discussion about mascots on that show. Which is great. Like, I'm glad they're bringing that to attention. But there's no indigenous representation on that show. Mm -hmm. There is, and this is so minuscule, but this is like the one other thing I noticed on that show is there's a hat with a button on it, a hat uh, worn by a guy who's part of like a secret society of... Like really cool, like people, all black folks who uh, are, are like, yeah, the secret from different society. society. You've yeah, seen it, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're like, we need you. We're you know taking you into the society, and mm-hmm. uh, it's really cool. I love that storyline. But <laughs> the thing is, his hat it, on the little metal button, it has a uh, like an Indian head on it, and I'm just oh. like, it's not that that's a terrible thing. I'm just like confused at why that was necessary and who thought of that and why they did that when there is not one indigenous character in the entire series. Mm -hmm. So I'm really hoping they'll change that. I would love for there to be at least one indigenous character on the show.
0: They have they have one Asian character. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I kind of noticed that that sounded kind of she random. Even says, but like, uh, I remember she's like the they...
1: Asian catch all friend. or something. Exactly. Like they just yeah. like
0: introduced her and it felt kind of random. That was just something mm-hmm. I noticed. And I'm like, OK, so there's one Asian person. <laughs> and then where's the indigenous person yeah. or at least at least one, please. Yeah. Like.
1: And of course, indigenous peoples are actually in the US, like the least likely to attend university, the least likely to go to grad school and get a Ph.D., I think I heard recently on the All My Relations podcast that it's like one in 10,000 indigenous peoples have a Ph.D., which. Oh, wow. Yeah. All My Relations, by the way, is an incredible podcast out of, I think, Seattle uh, by Matika Wilbur and Adrian Keene. And they're both incredible indigenous women. Adrian is an academic and scholar specializing in education and native peoples. And also, language about appropriation. And Matika Wilbur is just an incredible photographer who has a project called Five Six Two, where she travels to all the native communities in the US and does stories and portraitures and things like that. Yeah.
0: Amazing. That's fantastic. You had a few other examples in the media that you mentioned.
1: I could go through some of the examples, kind of yeah. Just, yeah, so One Day at a Time is an awesome, like, cuban-american family sitcom i absolutely love it it's i'm not really into sitcoms but it's so hilarious and it's what i need to watch at the end of the day (laughs) and it reminds me a bit of where i where i come from and this most recent season there are three seasons so far we're fighting to be able to have a fourth season even though it's been so successful the reason they have to fight for it is beyond me in the third season however there is a scene where also there are no indigenous characters on the show Like there are characters who may identify as descended of indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. I don't really understand Cuban identity very well. Right. But there's this kind of idea that you get from the show that someone talks about. It's like, we're everything. We're a little bit of everything. So I think that's kind of what one of the characters meant. Mm -hmm. But there is a scene where there's like a fake totem pole in the kid's bedroom. Like when he's talking to his mom or arguing with his mom or something. In the background, you just see this little fake totem pole. And I'm wondering, what is the point of that? like this is being shot and this also takes place in LA. So they're like a couple hundred miles south of where people actually make totem poles, like real totem poles of those cultures. Mm -hmm. And there's no context or story behind it. There are no indigenous roles. It's again, it's just replacing indigenous roles or characters or the work of that with home furnishings, with kitsch props and decorative objects and things you get at a gas station in Canada or the US. And it's it's really, I think, unethical, and it does a disservice to Indigenous peoples. I mean, L.A. is on Indigenous land. I think it's on Tongva land, and Indigenous peoples in California have faced incredibly violent colonization on the uh, on behalf of Spain and the United States, and you know, including the mission system. And it's, I mean, there are people there who like are the last speakers of their language. Like Wokchumi well, is one of the. There's only one speaker of that language left, one native speaker, anyways. A lot of violence has been done about them, and they could be representing that in the show. The Bay Area has a huge native community, a huge intertribal urban population, and there are natives in L.A. from the U.S. and Canada, and, you know, they have no representation on TV.
0: Not at all. Yeah. And a lot of media comes from there. Yeah. Had you mentioned Frontier yet?
1: So Frontier is actually one of my favorite shows. It's Mm -hmm. a Netflix show that came out uh, just a couple years ago, and there are three seasons. They've stopped after the third season and stars Jason Momoa. He plays this the son of a Cree woman and an Irish fur trader guy in the Hudson Bay area, kind of the eastern part of the Hudson Bay area. So he has his own little independent fur trade company in the show, and it's kind of about the complexities of the political and social landscape of the region at the time between, like, Montreal and the Hudson's Bay company, and or the Hudson's Bay, and, you know, just what it was like negotiating and going to war between different groups and companies and tribes and things like that and uh nations and it's really actually quite fascinating and i just i'm such a geek for fur trade culture so i love (laughs) it but i have a few problems with it i think my main problem is that there are white women running the tavern or in the tavern and in this little fur trade outpost in the northern woodlands along near the hudson's bay and it's like at the time in the late 1700s like I think the show takes place in the 1790s they say Mm -hmm. that would have been totally historically inaccurate it's just and they have so much dialogue and that takes away from indigenous women having dialogue in the show and at the same time they do have a great indigenous um, female excuse me a couple great indigenous female characters including Tantu Cardinal playing a Cree uh, Ogimakwe maybe you'd say like a female chief Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we have Jessica Martin, I believe, is her name, who plays an Anishinaabe woman uh, who is just this badass warrior. And uh, it's kind of weird because it kind of make her look like a '90s cyber girl. I don't know if you remember cyber culture at all, like '90s,
0: 2000s. Vaguely, they kind
1: of like there's a thing they do <laughs> with the hair, and it's like, okay, you know, that's that's fine. But um, <laughs> there are just a few historical inaccuracies in the show, and it's just like really gets to me because they were so close to having a cool show. But mm. um, and they also have. In one of the first episodes like you can see metis people walking in the background and it's great because wow there's metis representation on the show but you look at their sashes and you can any metis person could tell that's not a finger woven sash that's not even a loom woven sash the sashes they're wearing at the beginning in the background characters they're made by machines and they're just like red twenty dollar sashes and they're machines that weren't made into like the past couple decades and they're not that great of looking sashes. It's like they couldn't have shelled out a little bit in the budget for like a, at least a loom-woven sash. And like I have this thing with Indigenous representation in historical films and period pieces. Mm-hmm. If 90% of the costume budget isn't going to traditional Indigenous clothing or regalia for those films, because that's then they're doing something wrong. Because that's how much... Absolutely. Because if you want to engage in fair trade and keep things being made by Indigenous peoples and made the proper way and historically accurate, then that's how much you're going to have to pay
0: absolutely hands down so, yeah <laughs> i don't think that's asking too much yeah. i think that's extremely appropriate and
1: i'm talking about frontier i'm talking about the revenant i'm talking about woman walks ahead like so many westerns and movies and period pieces yeah
0: absolutely i wonder have you ever seen twilight
1: i haven't actually but i'm aware <laughs> of it and i've seen clips and like i've okay. seen the trailers i think right. but uh i have issues with that off the bat the fact that they hired Tinsel Core—I forget her name—but she's a non-native woman who posed as a native woman to get roles and to go oh. and to speak in native communities to our youth about working in film. And she's not even native, and she lies to people. and And she got taken down on Twitter or something because she was just such a pretendian And Oof. uh she's not native at all. I believe she comes from Desi or Indian family from India. Oh wow! I'm not quite sure. I heard like she rejected her family. I'm not quite sure. It's something just like a a really problematic
0: person that's been posed to be this like
1: but she got a role where an actual indigenous woman could have gotten that role she i guess she's one of the werewolves or something i don't don't know
0: yeah yeah and also
1: the main guy the main werewolf
0: taylor lautner he's not
1: native at all no and everyone thinks he is or everyone or they just or they know he's not native but they just don't care and it's like the main indigenous role in that movie goes to a non-native person There were some Native actors in that movie who have gone on to get other roles, and that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're privileging non-Natives is really problematic. Also, I noticed in um, the... I think in the first movie, does he not have long hair? And then he has short hair at some point.
0: Yeah, I think that's what happens, yeah. Oh, no, maybe he gets short hair than long hair it was a couple years ago but i don't know yeah it was, go on I,
1: I felt like that was really weird like why did i don't know i guess he cut his hair or the people in charge of the movie cut his hair i don't know if that's how it is in the books but i felt like that was problematic because they were in a sense trying to make him appeal to more audiences by cutting his hair right and yeah i don't know like by shedding his indigeneity because maybe he was being too indigenous even though in mm. real life he's not indigenous at all but yeah i was just like this is messed up because cutting your hair in indigenous society is not something we take lightly um, it's not something that makes you less indigenous, but it's something that I don't think any native person who comes from a culture where that's important would think about, would do just on a whim, yeah. just get a haircut or something, mm-hmm. not without seriously taking the time to think about it.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a lot of sorry. terrible, <laughs> terrible representation. I'd love to know what you think of what it would look like if representation was done right.
1: Wow. So this is something I wish we had at U of M was indigenous film course taught by an indigenous professor, of course. Otherwise, I don't think I take it.
0: Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: There are some movies that have been directed by Indigenous peoples and have just turned out so incredibly beautiful. Probably the most famous is atanashwat the Fast Runner, which is a movie that's entirely in Inuktitut, and it's an incredibly beautiful language. And it's a movie you can just lose yourself in for an entire afternoon. Watch it on a snowy day; that'll make it more more realistic because it takes place <laughs> in tundras. And it's that's just amazing. an incredible epic of a movie. And I think a lot of Indigenous filmmakers look up to that movie. And there's also a great, I think he's Seminole Creek, Muskogee Creek director named, uh, he's Muskogee Creek, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, oh God, he's going to get mad at me if I get this wrong. Named uh, Sterling Harjo, and he's an, an awesome filmmaker. And he has all, this documentary called This Maybe the Last Time about indigenous hymns, like gospel music sung by like his tribal community in Oklahoma and how it kind of got them through the Trail of Tears, got them through incredibly... Um, difficult acts of colonization, of violence, and how they s- used kind of Christianity or Christian music to survive, but they would sing it in their language. And it's just a really beautiful film, kind of an ethnomusicologist standpoint of that. And he has like a drama called Miko, kind of a psychological thriller drama. That's M-E-K-K-O. It's an incredibly beautiful movie. And I saw that in Minneapolis in the Film Festival, which uh, has happened the last two years consecutively and march and missy whiteman who is an arapaho and kickapoo filmmaker is kind of in charge of it and she is an incredible woman and she brings these indigenous folks from the film industry to whether indie or big time and they like talk on stage and to present films and it's at the walker arts center in minneapolis and it's really incredible yeah and i just have a a lot of hope actually for the future of indigenous film a good person to follow would be jesse wente w-e-n-t-e is his last name and he's an anishinaabe film critic out in toronto i believe tantu cardinal is great she has an interview with rosanna Deerchild on unreserved that came out recently and she talks about indigenous peoples in the film industry and the history of it because she's been there for decades you know from when there was like very little going on and having to fight for so much to a time when she's you know in these movies and there's so much more control that we have as indigenous peoples over our narrative so there's this scholar of the history of religions who i used to really admire when i was younger and i really liked his work so i followed him a lot his name is reza aslan he's uh iranian american and he talks about a lot about the representation of Middle Easterners, of Muslims, of North Africans, of people who you know practice Islam mostly yeah. uh, in film and TV and how they're demonized and vilified as terrorists and things like that. And he even was part of a sitcom, like kind of a pilot sitcom or short web series called Halal and the Family. <laughs> and It's nice. really funny actually. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure it's still up online. And he really brought up this important point about Will and Grace which was I think on in like the late 90s, early 2000s. I think the two main characters or a couple of the main characters are gay guys mm-hmm. and he talks about how these characters may have very well humanized lgbtq U.S. people in the u.s and how that such a
0: fascinating point. yeah
1: and it actually makes a lot of sense and it's not to say that there are people who enjoy that show and who enjoy those characters mm-hmm. but would go out and take nothing from that and be totally homophobic because i'm sure that happened a lot too I'm sure but uh the thing is like the fact that maybe some people kind of let their guard down around gay people became more comfortable around gay people just from watching the show kind of began to sympathize with gay people more because of the show speaks to the ability uh, of to doing that with other groups yeah and, oh, the, yeah, and yeah. the power of entertainment and media i have this kind of idea or thought that in a lot of countries what happens in the capital city is what happens in the country it's kind of you know
0: the prototype yeah
1: but like in the u.s It's not really what happens in D.C. I mean, of course, the policies and everything in D.C. are super important and they do affect our lives in very real ways. Mm -hmm. But the average American isn't paying attention to what happens in D.C. Maybe in the past couple of years, they've been starting to more. (laughs) (laughs) But they pay attention to what happens in Hollywood. They Mm -hmm. vote more for American Idol than for the president. We all know this. And so if you want to reach the hearts of Americans, it's really through television, film, Netflix and that's why it's really important to have diverse casting and authentic representation or you know narratives controlled by the groups whose characters are being represented in the TV shows and films.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like a yeah. thing that you had said you said sitcoms are a way to humanize people and yeah. that's that's such that's such a fascinating yeah. point and you're absolutely right.
1: If Will and Grace had never existed, the show, if no show had existed that humanized gay people in that way or kind of gave them a central role in a TV show, And I can't say that there were no stereotypes in that show because I never actually saw it. I wouldn't be surprised if it would have taken the U.S. at least a few more years to legalize gay marriage. I think it's important to note how we can use entertainment television to give our own stories of indigenous peoples to bring them to the screen. And that will affect policy because if you look at D.C., I mean, it's the Washington R-Words mascot is everywhere. How can... A lawmaker a white lawmaker who works for the bia or whatever how can he make laws that protect native peoples who live either in his area or on the other side of the country how can he make those laws and decisions if he has no contact with actual native peoples if he leaves his office every day and is surrounded by those stereotypes and those images that reduce living human beings to mascots it's incredibly damaging and the American Psychological Association has published work and research that it is damaging to the psychological well being of Native peoples, to the self esteem of Native youth. And these mascots and these stereotypes and these things in these movies and these costumes and these Native themed parties, they really, they actually raise the self esteem of white people, of white youth, mm-hmm, because it mm-hmm. relieves settler guilt and it yep. uh, instills a sense of kind of, you know, validation. Yeah. Or I'm like a brave Native warrior. And, right. And, or like, uh, sexy native princess, even though we don't have princesses. Most, a lot of our societies don't have royalty. Right. Yeah. All these uh, points you're making yeah. on
0: psychology as a psychology student can confirm. You're totally. right on the money. Yeah. yeah. It's
1: yeah. like people are using entertainment, roles in movies, things like that to replace us. And um, I'm actually currently filming in a movie right now. Which is amazing.
0: <laughs> That's like the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs>
1: so I work at a little cafe and I was discovered in the cafe. And, uh, it's a Métis movie directed by Irene Vermette and who's a local director from Manitoba. She lives in Winnipeg now and she does incredibly beautiful experimental film where she like hand, I don't know if this is the right term, but like hand splices actual film and like kind of collages it together. And it just this incredible stuff. Wow.
0: Um,
1: and she's doing her first like indie feature length film. And it's about a Métis family in uh, southern Manitoba, small town Manitoba, the nineteen late 1950s, like mm-hmm. early 60s. And I'm a mechanic. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, we, we're kind of poor. And it's mostly in French. But we throw in some like machifs, some Ojibwe words in the film. Kind of mix it up. Even some English, I think. And it's just incredible because the core group of people working on this film are either women, indigenous, or both. And the most important thing for me is that the director is indigenous and she is, she's Métis and it's just, we're having an incredible time. It's definitely like, I love working with so many kind and creative people and doing this together in charge of our narrative and praying to the land and, smudging and having elders present and having women present there and being kind of in control is so important and we know that it's important that women have groups and people they can talk to in the film industry in particular and entertainment because like we know all know about the me too movement and everything like Mm -hmm. that stemmed a lot from hollywood in the film industry and i Mm -hmm. think every movie Especially a movie that has the budget should definitely have. It actually doesn't require a budget. They should just have a women's council on every movie, a women's council, a BIPOC council on every movie to make sure that marginalized peoples in the film are comfortable and not being harassed, and that human rights violations aren't being and basic laws and aren't being violated.
0: Oh, I, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when can people expect that movie to come out that you're talking about?
1: Oh, it probably won't be out till 2020. That's okay. my guess, because we're still filming. i waiting on the edge of my yeah.
0: seat until then. Like, the way you talk about it, I'm so excited it's for this.
1: really interesting, because, first of all, my favorite part is the clothes. Because we feel like we're in small-town Manitoba in the 50s and 60s. It's so <laughs> cool. Like, that's our r- wardrobe and everything. And uh, there are some subtle comments on colonization in the film and things like that. And, yeah, I think it's going to be really unique and beautiful, and I can't wait to see it either. <laughs> oh,
0: my god. So in in closing, uh, <laughs> do you want to share this uh, awesome tweet that you told me yeah. about? Yeah.
1: So to end on a more lighthearted note, I found this tweet. It's really funny. It's naming all these shows from the '90s and 2000s that are really pretty popular, and uh, actually one of them's from the 50, '40s or '50s, and uh, rep- kind of changing up their titles with indigenous-themed titles. So to kind of I guess reimagine things. I so. Love this. For friends, I've won the show Friends. We have Nietzsche's, which here in Winnipeg is like slang for friend or bro, and uh, it comes from Ojibwe, Nietzschewag. Smart guy, if that were a Métis show, it would be called Smarty shoot. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> and that's funny because smart is a word you say a lot in Machif, some dialects of Machif. Instead of the office, the band office. Instead of Parks and Recreation, we could be more honest about that, I guess, and call it National Parks Colonization. Family Guy, to make it more indigenous, we could call it Clan Mother. <laughs> There's a great show from the 90s, Sister Sister, starring Tiana Tamera Maori. Uh If it were an indigenous version, it would definitely be called Cousin Cousin. <laughs> Instead of I Love Lucy, maybe I Love Lenape's. Uh, that's, that gets me, because Lenape's are a tribe out east. Instead of Stranger Things, Stranger Beads. Oh, yeah. Beads as in beadwork. <laughs> that one, that's my favorite for sure. <laughs> and then for Longmire, um, you could actually just keep it the way it is. Because <laughs> I know a lot of natives who actually love Longmire. So there's
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again, yeah. Jack. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. Welcome back anytime. Thank you. Uh, be sure to check out our Instagram, WakeTheFUp, UMFM. And Jack, if you want to share your Instagram, people sure. want to follow you.
1: So, I just started doing stories too every so often, and they're kind of political. So, some people might like that. Oh, Uh, yeah. My Instagram is Bawajigeminobamadizwin. That's at B A W A A J I G E underscore M I N O underscore B I M A A D I Z W I N. And that means he is or they is dreaming of the good life.
0: Nice. And if you didn't catch that, that'll be linked from our Instagram as well. This has been Wake the F up on 101.5 UMFM.